Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 15 this morning. Last week, Paul explained that he rejoices in his suffering for the church's sake, and that he was entrusted by God to present the word of God to them in its fullness. This word includes the mystery that had been kept hidden for ages, namely, the idea of Christ in them, the hope of glory. Paul says the goal of his preaching is to lead everyone to spiritual maturity in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Paul does this so no one will be able to deceive them with good-sounding arguments. In our passage for this week, Paul will encourage the Colossians to continue in Christ, being strengthened in their faith, and making sure that no one deceives them through deceptive philosophies. Because in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Therefore, he is over every form of authority. Although we only have 10 verses to look at this morning, those 10 verses contain some very deep theology. So before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, this is a deep passage and difficult to explain understandably. So I ask that you would help your people understand and follow what I have to say and give them discernment to know whether I have interpreted accurately. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 6 starts by saying, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, or some translations say, received Christ the Lord, to receive Christ the Lord is to receive Christ as Lord. Contrary to what I was taught, to receive Christ is not just to receive Christ like you would receive a gift. Many people, they think they're saved because they said a prayer to receive Christ. And then they go on living as if he didn't exist. The Lord part is important. You can't just ignore it. In Greek, the word for Lord is kurios. And unfortunately, I'm not sure Lord is a good translation for kurios today. That's because we don't have lords in our culture. So the word Lord doesn't mean much to most people. We could translate Lord as boss. But that's not entirely accurate because you could tell your boss to go fly a kite. In the ancient world, you would not likely tell your Lord to go fly a kite. Not if you valued your life, anyway. In the ancient world, your Lord was a superior to whom you submitted without question. If you were a slave, your Lord would be your master. If you were a foot soldier, your Lord might be the centurion. If you were a member of the king's guard, your Lord would be the king. When Paul talks about accepting Jesus as Lord... He is talking about an attitude of the heart that willingly submits to Jesus' absolute rule and authority over you. You willingly submit to him as your commander-in-chief or king. That doesn't mean you become perfect, of course. No one is. But receiving Jesus as Lord means that you have accepted Jesus as the ultimate ruler and authority over your life, and your desire is to serve and obey him. If you have no desire to serve and obey Jesus, he is not your Lord, and you are not one of his. So in verse 6 again, Paul says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, 
Continue to live your lives in him. Paul is just reemphasizing a point he made back in chapter 1, verse 10, which was to live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Paul explains further in verse 7, being rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Paul is using kind of a mixed metaphor. Being rooted is like a tree whose roots dig deeper and deeper into the ground, making it more and more resistant to the weather. Being rooted in the word of God makes the Colossians and us more resistant to being deceived by false teaching. Being built up is kind of like a building, like building up a strengthen and strengthening the walls of an ancient city to protect it from invaders. Paul uses these metaphors to illustrate being strengthened in your faith as you were taught. Well, what they were taught was the word of God. You get more rooted, built up, and strengthened in the faith as you put into practice what you learn from the word of God. So Paul's exhortation in verses 6 and 7 is to be continually strengthened in the faith. Now, there's a reason for this exhortation. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. <clears throat> Other translations call these elemental spiritual forces basic principles or elemental spirits. Some in the ancient world tended to make gods out of what they thought as basic principles or elements of the world, like wind, water, fire, and earth. <clears throat> they were afraid of those gods or spiritual forces, and they were right to be afraid. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says such spiritual forces are demons. So in verse 8, Paul is saying that the deceptive philosophy to which the Colossians were being exposed was based on a combination of human tradition and evil spiritual forces. <clears throat> We will see next week that the false teaching that threatened the Colossian church seems to have involved things like keeping legalistic rules and regulations, harsh treatment of the body, the worship of angels, and sexual indulgence. The false teachers in Colossae focus on these things rather than on Christ. So Paul reminds the church in verses 9 and 10, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. The deity, of course, is God. In a nutshell, I think Paul is saying, stop focusing on human traditions and philosophies of demons, but focus on Christ, because in him is the fullness of God. And in him, you have everything you need for godliness. But let's, let's dig a little deeper. When Paul says in verse 8, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, this is almost word for word what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 19. Just as God dwelled in the tabernacle or temple in Old Testament times, Paul says the fullness of God now dwells in a specific person. Jesus. The idea is not just that Jesus is like God, 
but that the essence of God himself lives in the human Jesus. And it's not just that part of God lives in Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Theologians later said that Jesus has two natures, a human nature and a divine or God nature. In his human nature, he could get hungry and thirsty. He could feel pain and agony, and he could die. In his divine nature, he was God in the flesh, all-powerful and all-knowing. But what does Paul mean in verse 10 when Paul says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness? Well, Paul doesn't tell us, but we know from other passages that he's not saying that we are little gods. I would suggest that by fullness, he means that you have been brought to spiritual maturity in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul said that the goal toward which he strenuously works is to bring them to spiritual maturity. He does this through proclaiming to them the word of God in all its fullness. It is only through Christ, as revealed in the word of God, that you come to the fullness of this spiritual maturity as you live your lives in submission to him as Lord. Obedient Christians first expressed their submission to Jesus' lordship by baptism. So Paul explains, starting in verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. In other words, Paul is not talking about literal, physical circumcision done with a knife. But what is he talking about? Well, Paul is drawing from the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, which called for a circumcision of the heart. The idea was that God changes your heart. He cuts away that rebellious heart attitude that has other gods before God and that lives in rebellion against him. And he gives you a heart that loves the Lord your God above all else and loves your neighbor as yourself. That was the circumcision of the heart that Moses and Jeremiah spoke of. So in verse 11, when Paul says, your whole self ruled by the flesh, he is talking about before you were saved, how your whole life was focused on anything but God. Maybe it was money or popularity or fame or family or career or entertainment or sex or video games. Any one of a thousand other idols. Anything but God. And Paul just calls it the flesh. And Paul says it was all put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Circumcised by Christ? Paul, what on earth are you talking about? Well, Paul explains even further in verse 12. The circumcision of Christ is having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Just as physical circumcision cuts away literal flesh, the circumcision of the heart done by Christ cuts off our ultimate allegiance to all those idols I mentioned that take the place of God. Baptism symbolizes our desire to die to all those idols in the sense that we no longer want those things to be first in our life. Christ has changed our heart. He's circumcised our heart so that our desire is that he be first in our life. Theologians call that change of heart repentance and regeneration. When you are immersed in the water of baptism, that symbolizes your death to your old self 
and your burial. Coming up out of the water symbolizes your new life of total devotion to Christ. You are a new person. Paul elaborates on this in verse 13, saying, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Paul talks about being dead in sins. Our problem was not just that we put other things before God, but in so doing, we also lived all kinds of sin. It might have been lying, cheating, stealing, deception, lust, greed, envy, unforgiveness, or just plain arrogant pride and self-centeredness, or any of a thousand other sins. Paul says we were spiritually dead in such sins. But God made you alive when you committed your life to Christ by faith. That doesn't mean you suddenly stopped doing all the sins you were committing. What it means is that God changed your heart so that you no longer want to sin against God. You no longer want to put other things before him. You now deeply love Christ. You want him to be first in your life. You want to please him in your actions, your attitudes, your behavior. And you sincerely repent when you fail. That's what we mean by a change of heart or the circumcision of the heart. And that's what baptism symbolizes. And when that faith or change of heart takes place, the result in verses 13 and 14 is that he forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross is another way of talking about how Jesus took on himself our sin and how that sin was, in effect, nailed to the cross with him. And as a result, the legal charges against us have been forgiven and canceled. Imagine that you live in a country like ancient Rome that punished by public flogging or whipping. And you have committed a crime against the governor and have been condemned to 100 lashes. But as they're about to tie you to the pole and administer the whipping, the governor himself takes your place on that pole. And after the 100 lashes is administered, the governor says, the penalty has now been paid. All the charges against the prisoner have been canceled. That's forgiveness. Only in the case of Jesus, he didn't just get beaten for us. He was tortured to death for us. When we dedicate our life to him in faith, the charges of sin against us were nailed to that cross with Jesus and were paid in full. So in verse 15, Paul talks about what happened in the spiritual realm when that happened. Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. When Roman generals won a major victory, they would disarm their enemies who survived by stripping them of their armament and humiliating them by parading them in chains through the streets of Rome. They called this parade a triumph. And that's the background for when Paul says he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. In this case, the power and authorities in verse 15 are a reference to the evil or elemental spiritual forces we saw back up in verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, Paul says that if these demonic forces had known the plan of God and what he was doing, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They thought they were defeating Jesus and God's plan on the cross. But instead, he was defeating these demonic forces by winning the victory for his people, whom they had enslaved and blinded by sin. So Paul says God made a public public a public spectacle of them, undoubtedly before the angels in heaven. In the end, God always wins. Let me leave you with just two observations or lessons this morning. First, for most of church history, Christians have used this passage in Colossians to support infant baptism. They point out that Paul is comparing baptism to circumcision. And since children were circumcised as infants in the Old Testament, we should also, therefore, baptize children as infants. Those theologians are not stupid. Many of them in the past and today were and are brilliant and godly theologians. So why don't Baptists baptize infants? Good question. I'm glad you asked. We don't baptize infants because we don't think the point of Paul's comparison has anything to do with age. The point Paul is making is about the symbolism of death and resurrection, as Paul makes clear in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. When you are immersed in the water of baptism, that symbolizes death to our old life of sinful rebellion against God. Being immersed in water symbolizes that death and burial. Coming out of the water symbolizes your resurrection or a new life of total devotion to Christ as your King and Lord. That's the point of the symbolism. And you have to be old enough to make that kind of commitment, which is why we don't baptize infants. As I said, however, there are many brilliant and godly theologians and other dedicated Christians who truly believe that their infant baptism was biblical and valid, and they think that to get rebaptized would be to renounce their biblical baptism. Now, I personally don't think getting rebaptized would be renouncing anything. Uh, I was baptized as an infant and also again as an adult. But for example, a marriage recommitment ceremony doesn't renounce your original marriage. But if you are a dedicated believer in Christ, If you are a truly dedicated believer in Christ and you truly believe that your infant baptism was biblical and valid and you believe that to get rebaptized would be renouncing a biblically valid baptism, then I would not want you to violate your conscience by getting rebaptized. So what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. But if you are a dedicated believer in Christ and were baptized as a child, but that baptism, that baptism means nothing to you now. Or if you have never been baptized, you need to get baptized as a public declaration of your dedication, commitment, and faith in Christ. 
As I've said before, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. Baptism was the first step of obedience to Jesus. Baptism demonstrates that you are serious about your commitment to Jesus. If you are unwilling to follow him in that very first step, I have to wonder whether you're really committed to him at all. My second lesson comes from verse 7, where Paul speaks of overflowing with thankfulness. I can't emphasize enough how important gratitude and thankfulness are in the Christian life, or in any life for that matter. So many people these days are going through life bitter and angry and feeling entitled and focusing all the negative stuff in their life. This can literally destroy your life, mentally and physically. Paul mentions giving thanks over 40 times in his letters. So I'd like to close this morning by offering a prayer of thanksgiving that I regularly pray in my private devotions, and and I've prayed several times before here in church. But you can't thank God enough, so let's pray it again. Lord, thank you that I can breathe freely and think clearly. Thank you that I can see and hear and feel taste, and smell. Thank you that I can talk and walk and use my arms and hands. Thank you for the health that I have and that I live without significant pain. Thank you that I live in safety and freedom. Thank you that I have a home to live in that is warm in the wintertime and for most of us cool in the summertime. Thank you that I have plenty of good food to eat and unpolluted water to drink and nice clothes to wear. Thank you that I have a bed to sleep in. Thank you for my family, friends, and church. And above all else, thank you for the amazing love and grace you poured out toward me on the cross of Calvary. Father, for these blessings and so much more, We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.